Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how will we use AI in 20 years' time? Writers have long conjured up inspiring or threatening ideas of humanoid robots and supercomputers, from Eloy and Morlocks in H.G. Wells's Time Machine to HAL 9000 in Arthur C. Clarke's novel 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, fiction has gradually been turning into part of our everyday lives and our workplaces. Today, artificial intelligence powers everything from the predictive text on our email to the smart speakers in our homes. It's also changing the nature of healthcare and education systems around the world, and it's raising fresh questions about the trade-offs, the benefits, and the risks as it rolls out its algorithms across our lives. So what's next on the not-too-distant horizon? Kaifu Li is a Taiwan-born AI pioneer closely involved in its development for three decades in America and in China. As a young computer scientist, he worked at the world's biggest tech giants, Microsoft and Apple, and became president of Google in China. Nowadays, he runs a venture capital fund, Sinovation Ventures from Beijing. His latest book is AI 2041 with co-author Chen Chofan, and it predicts how AI will look and work in two decades' time and what will have become of us mere humans on that journey. Lee believes artificial intelligence is at a tipping point, but will reality in our lifetimes match the hype? Kai-Fu Lee, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thank you very much for having me. Today you're speaking to us from Beijing, where you're based. You're one of the leading figures in AI worldwide. So give us a bit of a sense of the role it plays in your own life. Well, today AI is all around me. Every major app I use on the internet uses AI to show me the things I want to buy or eat or places I want to travel. I think the internet apps know me better than I know myself. When I go home and I order something, e-commerce or takeout, a robot takes it to me at home. Friends and, and my kids, they play with smart AI robots. And there's computer vision running on uh, smart vehicles, as well as the smart cities, improving the traffic lights that are basically uh, watching the cars and turning green or red, depending on whatever gives us more convenience. So AI is everywhere. And you might distinguish for some of our listeners and also to remind me of the difference between AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Some of my colleagues think this is perfectly obvious and some of us still get a bit confused. So help us out. Artificial intelligence is the general science of understanding how human intelligence works and how to replicate it. Machine learning is a particular way that usually uses a large amount of data 
to create the appearance of intelligence, but works quite differently from the human brain. So it's usually data-driven. So the more data you have, the smarter it gets. It's very, very good when you have a lot of data, like in financial applications and internet applications. It's not so good with uh, abstract conceptual reasoning, unlike our brain. Your new book is called AI 2041, and I'm interested in the significance of that date. Why take a horizon of 20 years? Well, 20 years is about the time when AI will have created the full benefit for society, just as when we look at how long did it take for electricity or for computers or for internet to unleash their power. I think in 20 years, AI will have unleashed this full power and either disrupted or enabled all kinds of industries and with major impact on the economy, creating havoc sometimes Uh, amazing convenience at other times, and really dramatically even changing major elements of our economy. Yet it's still very predictable because we can see annual improvements. So projecting it 10 to 15 years is quite doable. And then with some additional five to 10 years, letting it settle, be accepted, solve issues related to legal, regulation, moral, ethical issues, and then really be fully launched in the whole economy. So 20 years seems like it would create a description that would wow people to say, wow, the future is so different. Uh, Yet it's not like a 50 or 100 year out where it becomes almost like science fiction. Predicting the way that we use tech and what we take from it and what, what we leave from technological advance is a bit harder, isn't it, than simply predicting capability. So how people use AI in 20 years may well be very different from anything even you, with your very wide knowledge of the subject, envisage today. Am I right? Absolutely. So my predictions are based on extrapolation of technologies and scenarios that I can imagine, there will be many others that I will miss and many new ones. The analogy I always use is if we roll back time 20 years and asked me to predict the future of the internet, I would have predicted many things correctly, such as gaming, e-commerce, social network, but I might be a little bit off on payments and I would probably be way off in terms of Uber. That would not have been one of the companies I would have predicted 20 years ago from the internet. I'm going to talk to you in just a moment, perhaps, about the trade-offs that there might be in work, education, healthcare, some of the big areas of life and public services. But first, a little bit about your your own business. You run Sinovation Ventures, a venture capital firm, manages over $2.5 billion in funds between dollars and yuan, has 400 portfolio companies in China. Uh, What are some of the startup companies you get excited about and why invest in those rather than hundreds of others must come knocking on your door through your virtual portals every day of the week? Our investments are very related to the stories in the book. I deeply believe that the future of transportation will be disrupted. So we actually invested in four autonomous vehicle companies. Another one area is investment in Uh, manufacturing, basically in smart visual inspection, smart autonomous forklifts that drive themselves in a warehouse and factory, and smart arms that and hands that can pick up things in an assembly line. Because I believe China being the manufacturer and factory for the world has a strong imperative and need to automate the process. And lastly, healthcare, I think, is a big one. 
you know, China is um, in, in the process of needing to provide excellent health care to a very large number of people. We feel that in this accelerated need and a large market and new technologies coming out, it's a great place to, to invest and uh, potentially come up with new disruptive or improved methods of doing uh, treatment or medical devices. Reference there that your company manages over $2.5 billion worth of, of funds in dollars and yuan in the Chinese currency. Almost on every level you can think of at the moment, in the big picture, uh, there is a standoff between China and the West, and particularly between China and America, Well, even around the currency. Is that something you think is going to impede AI? If globally all countries worked together, I think that would clearly advance technologies faster. But we are, you know, a small private company. We have to accept the global realities. And to the extent there's competition between large countries, we will try to at least not hurt our companies and our business. For example, to the extent that China feels defensively, it needs to have technological self-sufficiency, then there might be preferences or incentives for us to do more uh, pure tech investment. So we, we would uh, shift a little bit towards that because I think there is perceived to be a greater need to develop technological self-sufficiency. So you mean you, you are doubling down on, if I understand you correctly, on greater self-sufficiency for China rather than perhaps anything that is a joint venture or involves partners outside China, am I right? Practically speaking, we really don't have a choice but to do that, yes. Let's zone in on a few of the visions for AI's future you lay out. Education, work and healthcare feature prominently. Starting in the classroom, where do you see the greatest opportunities for AI in education? I think the classroom has been the least revolutionized scenario among all scenarios. And the role that technology can play is to really infuse technology so that the human teacher can do what he or she does best, which is become a mentor coach on the values and the collaboration and creativity and helping each individual grow. But what the AI can do is really create a lecture curriculum exercise test customized for each student in a way that addresses each child's different pace of learning. Someone who's learning more slowly will need to take more time. Similarly, uh, some kids will get excited by playing a game as a way to learn mathematics. And some might even really love being taught by a cartoon character. So those are ways in which as AI avatars become uh, smarter, they can customize, help each child become not just a good teacher who is targeted helping the child's weaknesses to improve, but also become a companion and make learning fun. Okay, I can't look 20 years into the future, probably with anything like the AI accomplishment that you can, but I can look 10 years to the past when I was policy editor, global policy editor for The Economist. I think I first met you at that time and came to see you in in Beijing. And this was already not just on the agenda as a sort of AI, what's the future kind of way, a conversation that we're having today, Kaifu, but I was also running around America looking at MOOCs and education was about to be disrupted and all the things that you've said were about to happen and 10 years later, we're still on the whole in public education services, not that much further away from the traditional classroom that you and I were taught in in different parts of the world. So I'm entering a note of scepticism that this education avatar 
led sort of quasi classroom utopia is going to cut through public education systems. They're very strong. They're very human-centred, often, particularly in, a, in the big Western cities, very heavily unionised. I, I mean, I'd give it another 40 years on top of what you say. Well, you actually might be right on this one. I have to concede that education, along with uh, religion, are probably the two slowest-moving institutions in, in the world. And uh, that's why I say this an 80% uh, estimate. But I, I do think... On the other hand, there are probably different um, cultures and countries might be able to move at different paces. Some very small countries like uh, Israel and Singapore, they might be able to institutionalize and get something going more faster. So overall, I would say there is an 80% chance this would be demonstrated somewhere in the world, but perhaps not in uh, countries where the issues you mentioned, union and, and, and slow moving, uh, make it more difficult. On to the world of work then, how is AI going to change the job market? There's an assumption that blue-collar jobs will be displaced by automation more quickly than professional white-collar jobs. But you wrote a piece for The Economist last year in which you said the impact would be felt more quickly in professional workplaces. Which will feel the impact more? In the next five years, we'll probably see more white-collar routine jobs being replaced because all of us do some routine work, some more than others. Let's say, think about the job of someone who's um, filing expense reports for, on behalf of employees and issuing payments and checks and so on. Every step of that can be completely captured as keystrokes and mouse movements. And those are very routine, very predictable, very template-based. So an AI, in fact, a technology called robotic process automation is already replacing jobs like that as we speak. So the routine jobs in the white collar are the most prone, especially given COVID has made a lot of people necessary to work from home. Their work is already converted into a digital stream. It makes it very convenient to be displaced either by outsourcing it or having AI take it over. But in the 10 to 15 year time horizon, many blue collar work will also be prone for displacement. We spoke a number of years ago about whether you could replace me with some of your AI. Have I, have I become more replaceable in the meantime? No, not, not at all. Not at all. I think a journalist who writes regularly routine content, for example, sports events, and also reporters who are merely reading off a teleprompter, of course, that's even more easily to be replaced. But a, a thoughtful interviewer who's um, asking tough questions, who needs to understand not just the words, but the deep concepts, I don't think we're anywhere uh, close to replacing you, Anne. You don't know how relieved I am as I uh, look to my pension planning to hear that, Kaifu. I feel you might just be being a bit polite, actually. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you with that challenge. I have promised, uh, promised or threatened that a number of times. Let's see if we could do something in the next five years. You say that this acceleration in the, of AI and its impacts will create unprecedented job displacement. So biggest winners, biggest losers, very broad brush. What do you predict on that score? Some of them are pretty obvious, right? People who are incredibly smart, creative, strategic, people who are CEOs, scientists, those cannot be replaced by AI. Uh, in fact, the, some of them will program AI. Those will be big winners. Big losers will be everyone whose job is routine. 
and everyone whose job consists of little pieces that require repetition and even a very little bit of thinking, let's say less than five seconds to make a decision. And I think a big surprising set of winners will be uh, people whose work may be somewhat routine, but are very much about human touch. So compassion, empathy, collaboration, teamwork, winning people's trust, people whose jobs are uh, uh, maybe a, a concierge, a, a tour guide, uh, or someone in healthcare services. I think in um, 20 years, people will be paid not just based on how much economic contribution, but how much they make other people feel better, how much they are indispensable in the process of uh, winning people over, whether as customer or something else. So those human services jobs, some maybe not the most desirable today, will go through a substantial uh, uplift over time. Healthcare is one of the industries you predict will be most disrupted by AI. Give us a sense of how you think it will be different in the future then. I think the combination of all the data being gathered in healthcare and being usable for AI and our awareness after COVID, I think will make healthcare the single most beneficial industry and profession combined with AI. So the kinds of benefits would include a much more accurate prediction and spotting and prevention of the next pandemic. We all know now that it could have been prevented earlier, but the signs maybe were not clear enough for people to read, but AI could read the signs. Another big area is drug discovery. We've seen lots of companies make great progress to use AI plus humans to discover drugs that are uh, most likely to become effective. This could have the impact of taking a $2 billion R&D budget into inventing a drug down to one-tenth of that. So all of a sudden, many incurable rare diseases become curable. And common diseases will have multiple treatments depending on each person. That will lead to precision medicine so that each of us may go through an AI diagnosis We'll base everything on all the data that we have, including our genetic sequencing, our MRI, CT, as well as our full blood tests to match us against all the other people and their records and determine for, for me and me only what is the most likely efficacious way to treat me with the highest likelihood of recovery. And of course, human doctor will need to approve or rubber stamp that. But I think AI will get so good at at that, at giving each person potentially a slightly different treatment. And that isn't as well studied in the medicine domain today because there hasn't been enough data. So all this data being gathered will dramatically change that. Um, As a result, people uh, will use AI not just for diagnosis, but also for prevention and also for longevity. That's a really far out there domain, but I'm actually a lab rat because one of the companies we invested in is working on AI longevity. I would, on an annual basis, uh, do a very in-depth blood uh, test as well as MRI and CT, as well as genetic sequencing with all the data being fed into AI to compare me against other people, my own age and younger and older, and determine how would I have to change my lifestyle, my nutrients, my exercise, my sleep in order to make me look like a younger person rather than an older person. And and I've been doing this for over a year and my tests are showing I'm already, at least in numbers, uh, six years younger. You're six years younger than you were. 
Uh, that's right. That's what the numbers tell me. And how, that's absolutely fascinating. How have you had to change your life if you have? And please don't tell me it's taken all the fun out of your life. I exercise more because I trust AI and I trust data. And when, it, when the data and the AI tells me, if you exercise, you will live that much longer. I really believe it rather than just reading some book. When we last spoke to you, you, you talked about the need for a better system of anonymized data collection, which is obviously so crucial in healthcare to building anything like the kind of AI advances that you suggest and perhaps making us all a bit younger than our biological years in terms of our health outcomes. And yet it seems to me the challenges have grown since then, Kaifu. I mean, if for a start, people are broadly happy to take the gains of anonymized data collection when it comes to something urgent like the, the pandemic. And even so, they're often worried about apps that are tracking them or how, who's got access to it. And, and frankly, also the pace of, of change and either carelessness or a desire for surveillance. Governments are often in the spotlight. Are citizens going to want anonymized data collection because they're not very sure what is going to happen to their anonymity? And they're quite right to be worried, I would suggest. I think the desire for privacy, anonymity and data not to go into the wrong hands is universal. And uh, there are many ways to try to address that. Most of the time people talk about regulations, which I think is uh, certainly valid. And, and in, in Europe and the UK, you have uh, GDPR and, and versions of that are being adopted in the US and even in China. So that's one direction, but that can't be the only solution. In fact, I believe technological solutions need to be a major part of the equation. For example, uh, there's a new branch of technology called privacy computing. And the idea there is, can we have our cake and eat it too? That is, can we use all the data from all the people to train really smart AI that helps everybody, but at the same time, each person's data never goes outside of a certain device that they approve. For example, keep all my data on my phone, but when you need to incorporate my data, uh, the AI learning algorithm runs on my phone and ex ex extracts some things that don't tell anything about my personal data, but sends model parameters up to uh, the overall server to combine them. This technology is called federated learning. Um, this could also be applied in, uh, in healthcare. Each hospital would run AI algorithms with the patient's data that the hospital has a right to, to access, but not to pass beyond that. So you can imagine 10,000 hospitals working together to build a better AI for cancer treatment without that overall training algorithm ever seeing any one individual data because they were only seen in the hospital in which the patient provided access rights. Well, theoretically, but this given hospital is embedded in a social, economic and political system, isn't it? So in the end, this trust factor can only work if on the basis that you trust the system that you're living in, wherever that may be, whether it's a democracy, quasi-democracy or a more authoritarian one, because otherwise your data is really never going to be entirely secure. That's clearly true. So one is people have to understand to what rights do different uh, entities have rights to their data, and uh, they have to be comfortable with that. And if they're not, they need to find a different place to live.
The Economist reported that since last February, China's hottest tech groups have lost at least a trillion dollars in combined market capitalization as a result of regulators cracking down on the sector. I should say this is not just a, a kind of China question, as I'm sure our listeners are, are aware. There are big questions there about regulators uh, and tech in the US and beyond uh, and what the right balance is there between state and tech. But do you worry about the sort of bubble bursting on the China tech scene of which you've been in a enormously successful part. I think China's recent concerns with uh, large internet tech companies are really not that different from EU and US, right? When a large internet company possesses so much data, it has the potential of doing things that are not consistent with what the users want. So regulations have been put into place. And when US investigated antitrust for Microsoft, it lost hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, today's valuation. I think checking large, powerful internet companies is something governments should do. Uh, My role is uh, not to invest in those companies. We're a tech investor, so we invest in much smaller companies, which, if anything, sometimes have to live under the mercy of large internet companies. So uh, I think checking large internet companies uh, is a way to protect end user uh, as well as a way to Uh, allow smaller companies to have more room to grow without being stifled. And you've also worked for Google and for Microsoft um, a few years ago as it was really starting, as these companies were starting their their ascent in in China. What do you make of the state of the debate in the US? A a lot of people, and perhaps in this particular, in this administration, are scratching their heads really about how far to go in and clamping down either through taxation or indeed on some of their activities, if particularly if we look at the spread of disinformation. You straddle the world uh, in terms of your knowledge of the tech companies. Which side of the argument do you fall on? I think the best way is to have regulations and uh, ecosystems that naturally incentivizes the large internet companies uh, to do things that are interest aligned with the end users. So, The problem of today's mistrust of large internet companies is that they can optimize uh, their profits by showing us content that may or may not be good for us. So I think one solution is uh, let them self-regulate, but they won't because they'll make less money. The other solution is uh, break them up as companies. Well, that doesn't address the issue either. So finding some way for them to self-regulate is the best way. For example, you know, can someone like The Economist, you know, publish a fake news score for each of the giants? And when they improve, you need to be fair to them as well. This way, if I were a social media company and The Economist score is the most trusted score on, you know, false advertising, fake news, extremist content or whatever, and then that becomes a gold standard, it will force me to change my algorithms to first make sure I'm scoring well on the economist score. Um, And secondly, whether I can make money within that context. I just give that as one example that will incentivize the right behavior rather than pay a big fine or break them up. Those seem like they're too, too large in punitive measures. I'm, I'm amused also that you've come up with a business development plan for The Economist in the, in the middle of it. As invigilator, news invigilator, I'll pass it along. <laughs> Just as we come to a close, I wondered what your hopes and fears were. First, for the 
future of the the tech scene in China, in, in your own country, being as candid as you can be, you know, what's the, the best that you're hoping for and what maybe causes you some sleepless nights? I think all tech have our double-edged sword. They will bring a lot of problems. And with AI, they bring problems related to privacy, bias, uh, whether they brainwash us, um, whether they're fair, whether they're explainable. But on the other hand, for every downside, there are also great upside. Um, and also for every downside, there's a potential technological solution. Um, we could potentially build smart AI algorithms that detect bias and fairness problems and tell us. So it's either a glass half full or half empty. But my view is always that if we look historically, Every technology has had its ups and downs. When electricity first came out, when the internet first came out, there were lots of issues. And ultimately, they were solved by technology. So I remain an optimist because I strongly believe technological platforms are neutral, but ultimately they will do more good than bad for the society uh, because we have the checks and balances in place and because I think there's more goodness in society than, than bad. Last thought on literature, really, and, and the relationship between literature and AI, as I know you, you enjoy books. I spoke to the Nobel Prize winning author, Kazuo Ishiguro, recently on this show about his book, Clara and the Sun. It's a, a, a novel that explores love and loyalty through the, the eyes of a rather appealing, somewhat troubled android. And I asked him if AI is capable of falling in love. What do you think? I think humans are definitely capable and foolish enough to fall in love with AI because AI will get better and better mimicking a human behavior and draw human emotion and read human emotion. But AI, as of today, has absolutely no self-consciousness and no feelings and uh, no self-awareness so that it cannot possibly feel love. So if you're ever thinking you might fall in love with a an AI or a chatbot or a robot, uh, always remind yourself, no matter how much you think you love it, it will not love you back. Food for thought. Kai Fu Lee, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, we'd love to know what you think about this fascinating debate. Where do you think AI will cause most disruption or promise? Kai Fu ended our interview there on an upbeat note. Do you or your at-home humanoid agree with him? And if you can't get true love via machine learning, what would make the biggest AI-led difference to the way you live? Write to us, podcast at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And my thanks to Christine Sheridan, who emailed to say how much she enjoyed our interview with the actor Simon Russell Beale last week, and to point us to Paul Simon's song, American Tune. Apparently, the melody is inspired by Bach's St. Matthew Passion. I issued you a challenge where you could find Bach, who Simon Russell Beale plays on stage at the moment, in ABBA. And the answer is, it's a rolling fugue in the song SOS in the bridge to the chorus. If you haven't listened to the episode, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the ABBA afterwards. Don't forget, there's never been a better time to become a subscriber to The Economist, especially while it's written by humans, not AI. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My very human producer was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 